Well, hello there and welcome. I'm Judy DL and I'm a radioactive cockroach. It's an identity that needs a bit of explanation. When we make disclosures about sexual assault, we can feel cockroachy like we should scuttle back under the fridge and we can feel radioactive like people might recoil from us. But now, here you are with all us cockroaches at Radioactive Cockroach in a safe and comforting place. This is a particularly COVID-y episode today because as we've been putting it together, where we're living in Victoria has gone deeper and deeper into lockdown as we deal with a, a pretty scary spike. And so today on Radioactive Cockroach, we'll be concentrating on cockroach comforters. So if you're looking for the best comforters around, you've come to the right place. Oh, Judy Stutz, how are you feeling? I'm doing all right. You know, I'm doing okay. I'm still locked down. Yeah. Everybody, if you see anybody on the streets, they've all got their little masks in place. Not that you see that many people out. Things are getting serious when you get waved down by the police and asked, where do you think you're going? Yeah, well, where did you think you were going, Judy? Well, I thought I was going round to Greg Fleet's place to give him a book. But you weren't, and were you? I wasn't, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I, could, I could hear the ghost of my husband saying, you know what the rules are. Rules apply to everybody equally. That's why they call Even rules. sensible people who are behaving safely, they've got to stay home. But I gather you didn't drive through the checkpoint or swear at the policeman. I certainly did not. Um, uh, he was a, a, he was a, actually a lovely young fellow and he said, can I just ask you where you're going today, madam? I've reached that age now where I'm madam. I'm going to my friend's place. I've got to deliver him this book. And he goes, that doesn't sound very urgent. But, but no, actually. <laughs> and you did a U-turn. Uh, was it a safe U-turn? It was, yes. I just, I just did a U-turn and, and, and went back home with the, the nice policeman waving, you know, in, in the rearview mirror, thinking, oh, that's one little old lady I've saved today. <laughs> <laughs> seem to be retracing my track when we came out of COVID lockdown we swore we wouldn't be back so if you should happen to find me with an outlook dreary and black I'll remind you to remind me we knew we'd probably be back I'm starting to miss the clubs, the cafes, the nights at the movies with my mates. The pubs we frequented, the birthday feasts. Now isolation seems to be my fate. So if I let nostalgia blind me and my resolution is slack, I'll remind you to remind me. We knew the bloody thing would come back We're missing 
each other. Now we're stuck. We're really a connected bunch. And we'll all be zooming all the time. Who me? Or maybe I won't. Just a hunch. But if I once start looking behind me and begin resenting this track, I'll remind you to remind me we knew the bastard thing would come back. I've pulled in my horns, I'm not too forlorn, it's not the will to comply that I lack. Just look round, we're all housebound and we knew the freaking thing would be back. But we hoped it wouldn't be back. So cockroaches, terribly exciting. Back in the first episode, we did a shout out. We wanted to meet our hero, Judy Small, and the folk scene came through with the goods. And thanks to the magic of Zoom, which I have learnt to embrace, she's here with us today. There, can you hear me? We can hear you, but can't yes. see you. See me. Okay, that means I have to press the button that says start video. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, that one. Hi. Oh, look at you. Don't you look so great? Love your glasses. Oh, we're so excited. I never said you need you need Welcome to Radioactive Cockroach, Judy Small. We're hugely excited. Um, both of us, I think between us, have all your vinyl and most of mine signed, so that should tell you that we've met before. <laughs> <laughs> that tells me how long you've been around, Judy. Yeah, quite long enough. I threw all the vinyl out, actually, in the early 90s. We, we threw all the vinyl out because it wasn't being sold. I should have kept it. At least with books that haven't sold, you can insulate your ceiling. Exactly. Before you did the judging, you were in... um... Slater and Gordon first Yeah. for about six years. And then I went to Victoria Legal Aid, which is, of course, where my heart was. Yes. And I stayed and I was there for nine years until I I was appointed to the bench or kicked upstairs, as we used to call it. Kicked upstairs, yes. Criminal lawyers see bad people at their best and family lawyers see good people at their worst. Yeah. There's a lot of truth yeah. in that. <laughs> yeah. And look, in um, in foster care, uh, you see the lot, but you see them at That's their right. most vulnerable. There's nothing jocular about tragic circumstances, but there's still no. humour. Well, there has to be. Yeah. I mean, because of the tense nature and the, the really full-on nature of the work, there has to be humour. There has to be. Them. And that's different. And as long from... as the humour's not at the at the expense of the vulnerable people. Yeah. Um, then I don't see any problem with it. No, that. I think it's okay if it's funny, and it's Healthy. not funny if it's at the expense of vulnerable people. Exactly. Um, ceases being humorous. But your, so many of your songs were humorous. Judy Stutz has got a favourite. Oh, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I had the opportunity, gee, nearly two years ago to do some busking with Glenn Nicholas. We were in front of cameras. We're making a TV show. Think mm. of a song, any song. I had a crowd around me, and all I could think of was, this is the song called the Rolling Poly people with the people that can call fat. We're the ones they make all the diet food for the food company. Sure, know where it's at. 
They tell us we're unhealthy while they get wealthy. Weight Watchers is owned by Heinz. And I tell you people, this is one roly-poly lady who's been reading between the lines. Yeah, and this is... That's <laughs> <laughs> great. I, I always say that's the most radical song I've ever written. When you think of, if, it's a, if a radical song is one which challenges the status quo, then, that, then it's true that it's yeah. the most radical song I've ever written. When I wrote that song, it was only the um, the, the words Weight Watchers, you know, the, the brand that was owned by Heinz, mm. but then they bought the whole company. Exactly. And they've got they like just bought the name so Weight that they Watchers could food it. and exactly. this, that and the other. Exactly. And then they yeah. bought the whole company, yeah. Yeah. You know, and they had their Weight Watchers points and that's yeah. the only thing I really hate away at Weight Watchers. Once you've had your points, you can't buy more points. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for myself, it's about being healthy and about being as fit as I can be. And apart from that, I don't care about my weight. I think that's very wise. Yeah. I really liked a song that really made, um, made it clear that there's a difference between patriotism and love of country. Yes. And that's, uh, what do you call it, the North Stars in the Sky tonight? The Sky, the sky yeah. of the Southern Cross. The Sky of the yes. Southern Cross. And I remember you introducing it once by saying it. sometimes you just keep your mouth shut overseas unless anyone suspects mm. you from the same planet. And I had that moment in a castle in um, Scotland when there was an Australian called Bruce spitting into the well. <laughs> <laughs> the danger of patriotism. Yes. And the it's, difference it's, between that and, and love of your country. Well, I think that's something that we can really learn from Aboriginal people, the yes. love of country. Yeah. And I've always said I'm grateful to live to be an Australian. I'm not proud of being Australian yep. yet. Yeah. And I'll be proud of being Australian when we have things like the lowest Indigenous infant death mortality rate. Things like that yeah. will make me proud yeah. to be Australian. Yeah. But, yes, there's a very diff big difference between loving the country you live in um, and being patriotic and saying this is the best, you know, make America great again, please. Yeah. You know, right. and, I, and I think, I think um, we as as the colonialists, you know, as the invaders, have to learn that. Yes, I love the, I love the concept that you belong to the to country. Country doesn't belong to you. Some will tell you love of country lies in stemming migrant tides or in strong defence against some foreign foe or the cricket teams and sailing ships are cause for national pride but it's never one of these that stirs my soul there are pictures in my mind of hills of blue and purple haze and the city skylines dawn of winter days and the blazing golden sunsets that leave me at a loss and the diamond studded sky that is the home of the southern cross. Oh look I was just going to ask uh, the illustrious Miss Small uh, do you still write music? No, I, look, I, I had to give up performing when I became a judge because judges don't have political opinions yeah. that they express. Yes, I understand that. And, yes. and uh, when I took all the politics out of my songs, there wasn't much left. No. That, so, that, yeah. um, and so 
I mean, when I was having my interview for being a judge, they said, of course you can feel sick. I, I said that I would retire from performance. And they said, well, there are judges who, who play music. And I said, there are judges. And they said, there are judges who sing opera. And I said, yes, but I don't sing opera. No. <laughs> <laughs> they know, clearly I, hadn't heard I, any I, of your music. Yeah, I sing contemporary political folk music. And, and uh, I wouldn't have felt um, that it was okay for me to keep doing that as a judge particularly as the, the, um, the issues uh, were those that were the issues of the day um, became those that my, that my colleagues were hearing. Yes. I only sat in the family jurisdiction, but my colleagues were sitting in immigration yeah. oh, and, yeah. uh, and uh, fair work and all sorts of things like that that, um, you know, would, would have made it uncomfortable for me, I think. Yes. So yeah. no, I, so I gave up then, and I mean I've all I've always kept, <laughs> I always kept feeling like, you know, something had come up in the news, and I think, gee, there's a song in that, yeah. but I never wrote yeah. one, yeah, and I still haven't. And I'm what I'm saying is I'm not saying never, I'm just saying not now. Yeah. There's one song I'm, I'm I think you, you don't need to sing anymore, and I'm glad, and that is No Tears for the Widow. And who can tell how many women live their lives in shadows, unrecognised, unsympathised, unseen and disallowed, who've lost not only lovers, but often half and whole, for marriage is a special word and only meant for some and there are no tears for the widows no tears for the widows for the women who've lost lovers and must carry on alone. i was just thinking about that the other day actually and thinking um that will never be played again because no. it won't won't be and and of course, there's a lot of songs that I write hoping that they'll become irrelevant. Yes, yeah. You know? um, yeah. And that's one that has. So that's a that's an absolute joy. You know, songs like "You Don't Speak for Me" are still current, unfortunately. Absolutely. And that's 30, yeah. Thirty something years old. Yeah. A couple of, I had a couple of really lovely experiences around all that, um, because and and I remember the lovely ones because there were also you know some really awful things yeah. that happened during that time. Yeah. But my wife, we got married in New Zealand in, in uh, 2014, and my wife was in Finland, of all places, when the vote went through the parliament. She was there for a week's work. So we were on the phone between Australia and Finland, between Melbourne and Finland. I was sitting in a car when the vote went through the parliament. Yes. And so we sort of celebrated across those miles that had gone through the parliament. <laughs> that Sunday, three days after that, um, I went to pick my wife up from the um, airport and I was sitting in the coffee shop um, just waiting for her and a, a couple sat down and, and you know, we got talking and they said, and, and who are you here to meet? And I said, well, I'm here to meet my wife and when she comes through those doors, that will be the first time that we have been together on Australian soil as a legally married couple. And the woman looked at me and she said, wow, you're really the human face of all this, aren't you? Yeah. And I just, and I just that, it just felt amazing. Yes. And then a, a few days later, this is in, in a courtroom. I'm sitting, I'm sitting on the bench and I was just about to rise and one of the uh, barristers who was... Uh, <laughs> 
an older fellow who's been around for a long time and I wouldn't have thought it of him. He stood up and he said, before your honour rises, there's just something I'd like to say. And that is, uh, I believe that something important has happened in your honours life in the last week. And I'd just like to say congratulations. That's great. And everybody oh. else, wasn't that lovely? And everybody yeah. else in the court look, is looking at each other and saying, what the hell is he talking about? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I said, I think what Mr. Ham is saying is that uh, my marriage to my wife, which took place, which was celebrated in New Zealand some three and a half years ago, uh, became legal in this country um, last Friday. Yes. And the whole court applauded. Oh. They clapped. It didn't happen and when you was, wrote that song, did it? It was extraordinary. And, and you know, you don't do that in courtrooms. No. <laughs> no. I mean, and I just had to say thank you very much and adjourn the court. And when I got home and told my wife about that, we, I had a little cry, I think. My school report when I was 11 said, Judy excels at all aspects of oral work. Oh, did it? <laughs> <laughs> when I... And my father said, I think it just means you talk too much. <laughs> <laughs> my PE teacher when I was 15 said, Judith shows no interest in this subject, but will cooperate when requested. <laughs> My father well, said, "That's as good as it gets." What did what does that mean? It's, I said that means I hold the jumpers if they make me. <laughs> I was a dancer and I rode horses. I saw no need of these things with balls, which it turned out I couldn't see. I loved sport. I played tennis when I was young, and I played softball and hockey, and I was a swimmer as well. Oh, good for oh, you. This- Nothing more dangerous than a 12-year-old with a hockey stick. (laughs) I played goalie for that very reason. (laughs) There's nothing disciplined about two teams of 12-year-olds playing hockey. They're just wailing about with hockey sticks. It's the bells of St. Trinian's without the cameras. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And it's just like they just come on and just go, teenager and I'm just gonna hit you because I can. Don't you know? think you can regret any experience. Um, like I was I don't know if you know this, but for my teenage years I was a fundamentalist Christian. And uh, well, uh, that must they, have been hard. It was. They got me when my dad died. I, my dad died when I was 14 at the end of year eight and they got me. And I was, and I stayed in that state in, as a fundamentalist Christian. That I used to sing at Fred Nile rallies when I was at school. Well, you really knew um, what you were writing about with the Festival of Light thing. Well, absolutely. You, you had insider knowledge. <laughs> <Not> <laughs> me. Um, but I, I, and I, I stayed in that until I was about twenty. But I don't regret those years. Yeah. I don't regret them all. They saved me from so much. I mean, I, I grew up in Coffs Harbour on the north coast of New South Wales. And what it, what it saved me from, I think, because I was quite depressed after my father died for some years, I think it saved me from getting pregnant. I mean, do, Christian girls don't do sex and they don't do drugs. Mm. And I think it was, it, you know, there are some very positive things. And also, I, I do know my Bible. And, <laughs> and if, someone, uh, if someone quotes that at me, they better get it right. What I say is that uh, I don't lie with mankind as I do with womankind. So that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're all rabbinical here. (laughs) (laughs) The thing that always used to get me when I hear like really fundamentalist Christians Mm -hmm. 
talking about the Old Testament, it's like, oh, I yeah. feel like saying, but dude, there's like 400 and something do nots in that. And That's... not even observant Jews follow no. all of them. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> be kind to one another and be true to yourself, yeah. I think, is the basis of all yes. of this. Yeah, so I don't ever regret that. Um, and I, I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't call myself a Christian today. Um, what I say is, yes, I have spiritual beliefs. Um, I'm not prepared to define them. And I'm sure as hell not prepared to have someone else define them for me. Um, yeah. yeah, but, you, know, I think but you, individual... you could share, you could nod, you could nod with recognition with someone that said, you know, I think this cosmos is a sacred place. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I really like I really like the idea that our entire universe might be a grain of sand on someone else's beach. And um, and Judy, you're no longer the family maiden aunt. No, I'm... Cause who do you think it is that gets to take them to the zoo or ferry them to Manly for a fun day? And who delights in doing all the things they love to do And still gets to give them back at night Yes, it's me, the family maiden aunt Oh, isn't it sad, marriage haunts a fading aunt Oh, well, there's nothing about me like that I betrayed an aunt I tell you what, I wouldn't so want it for quids Oh, I tell you what, I wouldn't so want it for quids I don't have to come to marriage um, what I am, though, if were I the family maiden, I would actually be the family great maiden. Oh, maiden lucky great. you! Yeah, I have five great nieces. Yeah, and oh, wow. uh, two of them married a couple of years ago. So I would think that sometime in the next five years, I'll be a great great. That's fabulous. Yeah. So you've always taken delight in the in the children in your life, I guess. Oh, absolutely. And I still do. I yeah. still have children in my life. I have I have an eight year old godson and uh, his family has five kids in it, so they they're all in my life. And I have uh, a fourteen year old and a nine year old in two separate families, uh, who would be my godsons if their parents believed in God. Yes, <laughs> and they still want they still want the function in their lives. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. well, yeah. I've always said that that function of the person in the family without the children. I mean, I've called it the maiden aunt when I was one. Yes, um, that function is vital. It does take a village to raise a child. Taking that into the court with you, how did you how did you feel about what you were doing in the court, and how did you manage that? I felt about it that it was worthwhile work. It was meaningful work. Um, that I was always thinking of it from the children's point of view, um, except for the property matters, you know. Yes. Uh, I was drawn to and more committed to in, a, in an emotional sense was the children's matters, the, the, the custody, what used to be called custody and access, those sorts of things. And what happens to children when uh, marriages break down and... Sometimes it feels like you can make a difference. Yeah. And sometimes it doesn't. When you're doing a job like that, you have to keep reminding yourself that this is the worst of the worst. Yes. Um, that 5% or something of, of matters that come to court end up in a judgment. Yeah. 95% of people sort it out themselves. Yes. Even, those come, even those who've come to court. For 95% of them end up sorting it out themselves. But the people who come to court are even the, the great minority. Yeah. 
yeah. you know i mean there's there's very you know there's the people who do it themselves without any any sort of recourse to the law at all and that's great and who have you know a, an amicable parting or a respectful party and who keep that respect and uh the the ones that we see in court are the ones who haven't been able to do that either alone or with help you know, of course, you have to go to mediation now before you go to court. So yep. they haven't been able to do that. So they've come to ask the court for help. And the ones that we see in contest, you know, um, the ones that don't end in consent orders are the most conflicted. And they were the ones that were both most devastating and most uplifting. Yes. You know, they, yeah. they're both the ones that gave me the sense of why I was there and also there were times when I'd come out of court and think oh my god those kids are really in trouble yeah you know yep. or, or there's or there's nothing I can do under the law to save those kids yeah you know some of those cases um are quite dispiriting um but again you know there's some wonderful moments I had one moment where um a couple who were absolutely at each other's throats. And I'd said to them um, at the last time they'd been before me, which was about a year before because of delays, um, I'd said, if you two don't get to sort this out, your child is going to be damaged. And I want you to think about, and I'd said this to lots and lots of couples, I want you to think about the adult that this child is going to become and what you want them to think about this time when yeah. they look back. Yeah. Are they going to think, oh, mum and dad didn't get on, but they loved us and they, they dealt with us okay and they dealt with each other around us yeah. in, in a good way? Yeah. Or do you want them to be thinking, mum and dad were at each other's throats the whole time and I got caught in the middle? And I was lost. And I was lost, absolutely. Yeah. And, and uh, this particular couple um, came in a year later and they had, they had done some awful things to each other, you know, on the... On the um, in social media and just just done some awful things to each other and uh they came back in and they came into the court together and i thought okay and it was for trial and they hadn't filed any trial material and i thought oh great because that means that if they want to go ahead there's another delay of about a year <clears throat> and they came in and they said and i said so and i think i said something like so what have you got to say for yourself <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, the the father stood up and said, Your Honour, we just want to say thank you because that year that you've given us gave us time to grow up a bit and now we are getting on a whole lot better and the kids are a whole lot happier and we just wanted to say thank you and we don't need you anymore. Great. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, That's what you want. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. They, they were few and far between those ones, but that one I remember particularly. Yeah. But yeah, those ones keep you going. There are some judges, I think, who have been able to um, not let that stuff affect them. And there are some judges who do that in a way that makes them, I think, good judges, and some judges who do that in a way that I think does not make them good judges. Yeah. Um, but I couldn't do it for longer than I did. Yes. And I'm in awe of those who really do care, who can do it for longer than that. Right. Like there's, there's colleagues of mine who've been judges for 20 years. Yes. 
in the family division in the family court out family court system and I don't know how they do that I yeah, really I think don't. it's I think it's to do with temperament and the ability to compartmentalize and some of us have that ability to do that psychologically healthy way yep. and others yep. of us can't yeah. And I think I didn't have that ability for a long while. And yeah. um, there were a couple of, um, and then I, I started not to lose the ability to care, but I started to get angry with people rather yeah. than being compassionate. Yeah. And I didn't want to be that judge. You know, people who are self-represented, you know, who didn't have the money for, um, yeah. you know, there, there are two kinds of people who don't have representation in courts. There's the people I call... Uh, unrepresented, who are those who um, don't have the money yes. to um, pay for a lawyer and yet don't qualify for legal aid. And then there are those who are self-represented who probably do have the money but think they can do a better job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, but to the unrepresented litigants who would stand there sort of looking like rabbits in the spotlight, in the headlights, and I'd say, you know, it must be a bit like being in a in a movie where everybody knows the script except you, and the movie's yeah. about you. Yeah. And my job, and I'd say, that's okay. I understand that. Mm. And my job is to help you through the movie. It's not to help you write the script, but to help you move through the movie scenes. Judy, can you I just questions? say that the cockroaches, the radioactive cockroaches, a lot of a lot of us have had to be yeah. witnesses, and I think you've just yes. summed up how we feel. That yeah, we're in, in a, a movie where it, yeah, everyone about, knows the script except except yep. us, and it's our movie. Yeah, yep. that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my my feeling was that I wanted those people to feel like they like it was their movie. Yes, and you know there were some times when I I had to say to, when I would say to some of the self represented litigants, <laughs> the only thing the 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 thing I am concerned about right here right now in this place is your children's welfare yeah it's not what you want or what the, your other partner wants what the other partner wants my concern is your children's welfare and that wasn't just a personal thing was it that was no no not at all the act, the act requires <laughs> um the, the a child's best interests have to be yeah um a judge's paramount consideration that's yes. quite right People often say to me things like, boy, you've done so many different things in your life. You know, you've been a psychologist and you've been a singer and you've been a lawyer and you've been a judge. And I say, you know, they're not all that different. They're all about power. They're all yes. about, and that's something that really interests me in life is who has the power, what do they do with it, and for whose benefit. And all of those professions are about that. They are. My songs they... were about that. You, yep. Psychology is certainly about that, and, and the law is most certainly about that. And look, so I sort to of be fair, you're a singer-songwriter and a soloist, um, and that's different from being a chorister or a person that does the sound tech in the back room. You've been a frontliner. The soloist can't do it without the sound person in no. the back room. Like people would say, thank you for sitting late, Your Honour, if I had sat late. And I'd say, well, don't thank me. I get paid very handsomely to sit on this bench. Thank my associates because they don't. Here we are at Radioactive Cockroach. I think it's really wonderful that there are people interested in power who, want, mm. who with the capacity that you have, which is to be the public face, because mm. that is hard for the rest of us. And being the public face of truth-telling, you've got a really good training for that and being a folk singer, a political folk singer. Um, but I try. that's what folk singers do. Yeah. Folk singers document their times. Yes. 
it's songs. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it can only be my truth. So, for instance, I would never write a song about Aboriginal issues from an Aboriginal point of view. Yeah. But I can write about it from a white person's point of view. Yes. You know, my yes. family came here with mm. the first fleet. We were, the gen we were literally the first invaders, Yeah. my ancestors. Other things, you know, like, for instance, I wrote a song called Reflections 30 years ago now. That's not my song. That's a song that um, comes from letters. See, one of the things that happens when you become a public face um, is that the people who um, connect to the music write to you. And uh, people would write to me telling me their stories. And it's an incredible privilege to be trusted with those stories. And so um, I, and I wrote back to a couple of them and said, would you mind if I anonymously um, put this into a song? And they wrote back and said, yes, that would be fine. Mm. And that's how I wrote Reflections. Yeah. And, and it really is a privilege to, to tell those stories because stories are the power of our culture. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. that's where we hold our culture is in our stories, yeah. and it, and and I always thought it was an incredible privilege when people would write to me and tell me those stories, so that I could then write a song and go out and sing it and get a whole lot of kudos for it when <laughs> really it wasn't even my story. And you were so lucky to be doing that before you could get trolled online. Yes, that's it. Look, I I'm I'm so conscious of that. Yeah, that it was it was before the days of the interweb. You know, people would write me nasty letters. That happened. Well, and that one took night, effort. <laughs> yes, that took effort, exactly. Yeah. And one night, actually, uh, after um, the album that had You Don't Speak For Me yeah. uh, came out, yeah. uh, they, somebody, tried, somebody called my record distributor trying to find out my home address. So my post, box off, my post office box was levied, was leave it open. It was jimmied wow. open. Um, and also at a gig that I did to promote that in Sydney, to promote that song, uh, these two very nice young people um, came up to me and said, we're federal police officers and we're going to check your car before you go home. Wow. And they did that. They checked my car and then they followed me home. So, you know, it hasn't all been beer and Skittles. But no, <laughs> but no. the serious ones still got serious. Yeah, but they got serious in different ways. They, you know, it is it is it does take effort. Like when I when I wrote um, Montreal, December '89, about the Montreal massacre, which yep. Yep. came a song about male about male violence, um, or about violence by men. I got lots of song. I got lots of um, nasty letters about that, telling me that I was I hated men and and it was an anti male song. And I, and I had one um, experience. I got asked to sing, I still don't know how this happened. I got asked to sing at a World Council of Churches gathering in Canberra. And so I sang, and I sang um, the Montreal song. And I came outside and this man approached me and he, he was shaking with rage. He was furious. And he told me that he thought that song was the most anti-male song that he'd ever heard. And how could I say things like that about men? And then he shook his fist at me and I, I you know I thought he was going to kick me yeah and this guy just stepped in between us I, this was one of the most powerful experiences of my life this man stepped in between us and said to the said to the bloke hey mate how come you are identifying with the men of violence rather than the men of conscience in that song ah yes oh, good question thought, <laughs> it, oh it was perfect and then he took him off and talked to him yeah and the guy 
But I thought that was an incredibly powerful thing to do, not only because the question is so powerful, but because a man took responsibility, took responsibility. for modelling that yeah. for another man. And don't you wonder why As you try to make sense of this Why is it always men who resort to the gun, the sword and the fist why does gunman sound so familiar while gunwoman doesn't quite ring true? What is it about men that makes them do the things they do? And I know there are men of conscience who aren't like that at all, who would never raise a hand in anger and who reject the macho role And if you were to ask them About the violence that men do I know they'd say They hate male violence too And so we wonder was a vehicle for change Yeah and, and I said, no, I think it's a cog on the wheel Of the vehicle for change Yes, yeah you know, it, it, Part of it, but it's not—it's not the whole thing at all. Yeah. It takes a whole lot more than a song. Mm. Yeah, I think Tom Lura, he had you know, <sighs> we have the folk song army guitars are the weapons we bring. Yeah, you're a cog. I was you're so not... sorry when he stopped. Yes, but you know? he couldn't bear doing it again and again and again and again. In well, he said that once Henry Henry Kissinger was nominated for the Nobel Prize, there was no point in satire anymore. Judy Small, it's been an honour and a privilege and a great joy for us to meet who Judy Stutz named as her hero and you agreed to come on. And if you do meet Judy Dench, could you please tell her that I'd love to talk to her? I certainly will. Um, Dame Judy and I are not in correspondence at the moment, but if I do, I'll certainly tell her. That would be lovely. And what would you like to take us out with? And so this is uh, a song that I wrote for Ruby Hunter, um, oh. who is a great uh, Aboriginal songwriter, and it's called Stolen Gems. Stolen Gems. Thank you, Judy Small. They promised her a circus, they promised her treats, promised her clowns, promised her sweets when they took her from the dusty small town streets of her family home she never again saw her mother's eyes never again heard her sister's cries never again believed a white man's lies her whole life long and those who've lived charmed lives from the start say they carry no guilt for they played no part in decisions that tore the very heart from a people's breast. It may not be our guilt, but it is our shame if we turn our backs now, if we bury their claim, if we sit on our hands in apathy's name. It may not be our guilt, but it is our shame. Play.
place to sleep each night Away from the noise, away from the fights She'd tell herself that everything would be alright When the morning came And she drowned herself deep in a sea of blues Another black kid on the street ain't news There was nothing to win, she had nothing to lose Not even her name and those who passed by her every day Never looked in her eyes before they turned away And turned her into an anecdotal play For their friends at night It may not be our guilt, but it is our shame If we turn our backs now, if we bury their claim If we sit on our hands in apathy's name It may not be our guilt, but it is our shame I saw her again just the other night She was singing her songs in a bright spotlight No one in the audience averted their sight From her face this time She was singing it proud, she was singing it strong The message was clear at the core of her song We've a distance to go and we don't have long To bring the children home and those who've lived charmed lives all their days With their serious suits and their chardonnays Cannot see that if they'd only come halfway They'd find an outstretched hand It may not be our guilt, but it is our shame If we turn our backs now, if we bury their claim If we sit on our hands in apathy's name It may not be our guilt, but it is our shame it may not be our guilt, but it is our shame If we turn our backs now, if we bury their claim If we sit on our hands in apathy's name It may not be our guilt, but it is our shame It's time for all of us cockroaches to step into the spotlight. Somebody shoot out that spotlight. Spotlight ain't nothing but jive. Today in the spotlight, we meet up with our very own Bess, but in a very different role. We'll meet her dear friend Rose, who some years ago ensured the charges were brought against someone who seriously sexually assaulted her. And we begin to explore what it meant to Bess and Rose to walk that journey together as primary witness for the prosecution and a key support person. But first, let's meet Rose as she responds to something His Honour Justice Andrew Tinney said in our last episode. He talked about hearings and their outcomes, stressing that the verdict is only one outcome. 
you know, a, a not guilty verdict does not mean that they didn't do it. Exactly. It just means that the evidence um, wasn't strong enough or the case wasn't necessarily clear enough to get a unanimous and unequivocal response. And it's a hugely um, high hurdle to, yeah. to jump over. It, it's a big thing to get your head around as well. But I, I, at the very least, would like to think that that he probably wouldn't take his freedom of movement so much for granted. Oh, what a nice way of putting it. Uh, Bess's <laughs> eyebrows are going through the roof there. Yep. Um, yeah. In our next episode, we'll feature Bess and Rose as, as they reflect on the support Bess offered Rose and the support they both received through various formal and informal ways. Here's some of what they had to say about each other. So, Bess, how did you feel about it? I felt trusted. Like, a, it was really special to be trusted with what we were going to go through. Yeah. And I felt and I felt really honoured that Rose had chosen me and that she wanted me there. Yeah. And Rose, did you live to regret it? Choosing Bess. <laughs> Choosing Bess. No, certainly not. That was probably one of the few things um, that I didn't have regret about uh, with the whole experience. And we will be hearing more from Bess and Rose next episode. In particular, we'll be focusing on the little things. Stephen Sondheim puts it well. It's not talk of God and the decade ahead that allows you to get through the worst. It's I do and you don't and nobody said that and who brought the subject up first. It's the little things. The little Cockroaches, we go through stressful and, and consequently somewhat irritable times. And it is often the little things. Shared meals, shared sitcoms, waking up to that coffee, waiting on the bench, getting a text or a call for no reason. It's the little things. And we'll be reflecting on that with a, with a few of our cockroaches. But now, we'd like to respond to some of your... This episode, we'd like our shout-out to be for the male cockroaches. Hi, guys. We know you're there. Our friend Mick is a great cockroach comforter and only too aware of how hard it is for men to reach out for help. And he wants us to pass on his particular helpful reminder. Cheat. That's C for having courage. H for help and asking for it. E for finding encouragement and to be an encourager. A, assist your mates. And a big capital T for talk. And he wants you to take wanting to be a millionaire seriously and phone a friend. Thanks Mick and I know we're going to be hearing more from you. We've also had some from cockroaches wanting comedy comebacks. And this episode, it's Judy Stutz putting her shoulder to the wheel as we wonder what made you say that? How come you can remember exactly what you had for dinner, but you can't remember exactly what happened to you? Well, 
those stuffed mushrooms that I ordered and that I chose to eat were not what gave me PTSD. And if you find yourself dwelling too much on things and in need of some support, please reach out to a friend or call 1-800-RESPECT or one of the other supports you can find by clicking the link on our Facebook page. And remember, all you friends and relations of cockroaches, it's a good idea to reach out in however small a way. In our next episode, His Honour Andrew Tinney will give us his perspective on victim impact statements and also his reflections on the variety of coping strategies people working in the field employ. We'll leave today's cockroaches in the spotlight now with a little life reflection from Justice Andrew Tinney. There's just one one thing that that the cockroaches might be interested in, and that is you're a very, 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 very dedicated follower of which football team? Uh, Well, it's Melbourne Football Club, and uh, it's a very sad thing, really. But um, I've always said that, uh, especially when I've been speaking to my friends who back the teams that have won premierships, I've always said I I just don't think I could actually love football any more than I do, uh, even if the side was not hopeless and had not been hopeless for most of my life. It gives you something maybe to cling on to. You know, some, it's a, a slightly irrational hope that they might turn things around and uh, they haven't so far in my life and they're not looking too close to it at the moment. But, uh, but I love it and uh, it's a great bit of fun, I reckon. Well, a great bit of fun for sure. But also, you know, there's a bit of um, tenacious clinging to a justified hope there and... That's something that we like to see in our legal system as well. So, I think so, yeah. Your Honour, thank you for your generosity of your time. And oh, absolute pleasure, Judy. And, um, yeah, we'll maybe look forward to seeing you in the stands sometime soon when COVID lifts. You can be cockroaches, podcasted cockroaches, giving us feedback and ideas for interviews, radioactive cockroach on Facebook, judycockroach at gmail.com. And we're on Instagram, radioactive.cockroach will get you there. Please share us with your friends and click on subscribe to hear us again. I'm singing along with the great Liberace performing at Carnegie Hall in the 70s. The more he gets going, the less I can keep up and so I am fading out now.
Today's soothing water-based literary offering comes from a punt in Oxford, where Dorothy Sayers has put Harriet Vane and Lord Peter Whimsey together while he reads through the notes she has made of a mystery. He relapsed into silence while she studied his half-averted face. Considered generally as a facade, it was by this time tolerably familiar to her. But now she saw details, magnified as it were by some glass in her own mind. The flat setting and fine scrollwork of the ear and the height of the skull above it. The glitter of close-cropped hair where the neck muscles lifted to meet the head. A minute, sickle-shaped scar on the left temple. The faint laughter lines at the corner of the eye and the, and the droop of the lid at its outer end. The gleam of golden down on the cheekbone. The wide spring of the nostril. An almost imperceptible beading of sweat on the upper lip and a tiny muscle that twitched the sensitive corner of the mouth. The slight sun reddening of the fair skin and its sudden whiteness below the base of the throat. The little hollow above the points of the collarbone. He looked up and she was instantly scarlet as though she had been dipped in boiling water. Through the confusion of her darkened eyes and drumming ears, some enormous bulk seemed to stoop over her, then the mist cleared. His eyes were riveted upon the manuscript again, but he breathed as though he had been running. Thanks for listening. Now, anytime you feel in need of support, a good chat or information, we encourage you simply to call 1-800-RESPECT. And you can also go to our Facebook page and click on the link there. There's a whole range of supportive options. And there's also a lot of other stuff about us and our guests. Cheers! Radioactive. Cockroach.